Network. Connected. MIDI session. Running. MIDI show control. Confirmed. DMX interface. Connected. Light control. Confirmed. Ethernet. Active. Audio interface. Active and engaged. Arduino unit. In range. Bluetooth remote pair. Connected. OSC IP. Active. We're ready. Start the queue. It's the show about control. Featuring Andy Dolph, Joshua Langman, Dave Mickey, and Mark Neiser. It's the queue. All aboard for episode nine of the queue. We are glad to be here today. I'm joined by Dave Mickey and myself. Our special guest, Marcus Ranham, will be coming up shortly. But first, I just wanted to quickly cover a new product I found. Uh, absolutely amazing. And hopefully that uh, some of you two will also find useful. QLab, Pro Stage Caller, Final Cut, Millimeter, Cliff Garage, SFX, Logic, Ducks, Twisted Waves, My MIDI Remote, Go It's time for the Q Review. Lemur is the professional MIDI and OSC controller app. If any of you have used Touch OSC, this thing blows it out of the water. I stumbled on this after our interview with Mike Poole a couple episodes ago and had a look at it when he claimed that it was so much better than Touch OSC. I have to say I was very skeptical by that, but knowing Mike Poole's genius uh, mentality, he was probably right. Sure enough, once I opened this thing up, I realized the vast depth of this thing and how far it can really go and became obsessed with it for three weeks where I basically did not leave my office and learned all I could and integrated it into my show, replacing TouchOSC. It has an in-app editor, so you can edit your stuff without your computer, make adjustments that way. Uh, It has amazing skins, so you can kind of change the look and the feel of everything and customize it. Uh, TouchOSC has a very limited color choice. Uh, In Lemur, you have unlimited colors, options, and some skins that just give you completely different looks uh, with each thing that you're building. Also has a very powerful user library where other performers and programmers have loaded stuff that they've built that you can download and share and manipulate and change yourself to customize it for your needs. It was a little overwhelming, really, initially trying to do some of the coding because it has its own scripting language as well. But there are some really good tutorials to get you started there. And you do get tech support uh, via email, uh, although it takes takes a little while to uh, get a response from some of that. Uh, It also runs on the Android platform. Some of the objects that are included with Lemur include Canvas. Canvas lets you use polygons, waveforms, circular objects, and almost any shape you can imagine to build and create your own custom interfaces. It also has containers that lets you put different pieces in a container that can then be moved around and controlled independently of other stuff on your screen. Great way to help organize and keep things, you know, looking clean. The custom button options lets you put an icon on different buttons and in an upstate and a downstate as well. Very cool icons. I don't think you can import your own, but they do give quite a few, which lets you not really need to even put a label on something. Just a quick glance at a symbol that once depressed can also change. So if it's a switch, for example, it can switch from one to the other and quickly let you know that it's engaged. They have include faders in this. There's lots of options with that as well. Uh, a lot of interaction where moving fader here can affect other faders. And the real beauty of this program is the scripting language that lets you have different buttons and faders and things talking with each other and uh, taking information from each other from your computer or you know via QLab or whatever interface you're using there. And back and forth where you can move text, you can have labels change. Uh, it just It's a vast, uh, vast world once you start to get into that. Uh, typically, as, as with TouchOSC, you have knobs, uh, LEDs, which are nice, give you all kinds of ways of kind of turning things on and off and letting you get a quick glance of where you might be in a project. Uh, menus, lots of cool drop-down menus not available in TouchOSC. A monitor object, which I have been able to do some of that stuff by using TouchOSC labels, but this is uh, labels on steroids. The monitor objects lets you kind of see in real time information coming from whatever you've programmed it to, to receive. One of my favorite things, which I actually don't have much of a use for just because of what I've programmed so far, 
is multi-ball. It's an object that has a bunch of balls in it, just like you'd think, in a rectangular space, and you can adjust their placement and their parameters in an XYZ geometry, lets you uh, change all kinds of things and controllers and um, whatever, whatever you want it to do. The great thing about the lemur is that you can make apps independent of your Mac uh, that can run and do little things for you that you may never have thought you even needed until you start to play with this beautiful software. I built a show timer system that lets me add and remove different components of my show and calculates in real time exactly how long the show is going to be. It then ends up with a little list that I have just sitting there on my phone that shows me the order of the show that I'm going to do and you can move and change all that stuff as well. I would totally encourage everyone to check out Lemur. It is available again on the iTunes App Store. It is an amazing program and I'm going to use it every day. I sure do enjoy it. Before we do our interview today, I just want to let everyone know we had a little recording issue at the very beginning of the interview, so the sound quality is poor but improves dramatically in a few seconds. Thanks. Our interview today is the artist currently known as Marcus Ranum. He is the Chief Security Officer at Tenable, the world's leading vulnerability management and networking monitoring company. He is recognized as an early innovator in firewall technology and the implementer of the first commercial firewall product. Since the late 1980s, he has designed a number of groundbreaking security products, including the Dexiel, the TIS Firewall Toolkit, the Gauntlet Firewall, and the NFR's Network Flight Recorder Intrusion Detection System. He wrote us a scathing email covering our UDP and TCP protocols from last episode, and we thought we'd get him on to talk to him and see what he really thinks which has not been a problem to get out of him. Marcus, welcome to the queue. So t- tell us a little bit about yourself, Marcus. Uh, what do you do? How did you get caught up in this cobweb of insanity? Well, I'm a, I'm a Unix systems administrator from way back, and uh, I was always interested in distributed systems. And uh, um, back in the early days when uh, computers started getting up on the Internet and corporations started hooking up, I implemented the first commercially successful firewall product and then kind of got stuck into computer security, and I've been stuck there ever since. Um, but, you know, I just I just like playing with stuff. What was the firewall product? The deck seal, um, which was, uh, you know, basically it was a bunch of ideas that I took from all over the place and kind of fused them together and cleaned them up and beat them into a, an integrated package. It was kind of fun, yeah. And is it you're still in security then? Yeah, I still am. I'm I'm a mostly well. I'm the chief security officer of a company called Tenable, which produces vulnerability scanner and vulnerability management monitoring solutions, um, kind of soup to nuts network analysis stuff. Um, so I work there, and then I I also have a little bit of leeway to occasionally take on side jobs, which usually means I do. I do incident response type stuff, or occasionally I do design kinds of things for corporate clients. You know, yeah. So I assume you worked with Al Gore then when you guys were developing the internet. Is that <laughs> well, I mean, if you want to, if you want to talk about that, I stole Al Gore's mouse pad. Um, <laughs> I do want to hear that story, please. Please share it with us. Well, so when uh, the Clinton administration decided that they wanted to put the White House on the internet, I was working for a custom company called Trusted Information Systems. I had started there, I think, three weeks before, and um, DARPA called uh, the CEO of TIS, which which was a defense contractor, DARPA research organization, and said, do you have anybody there who knows how to do anything with firewalls? So the next thing I knew, I was in a meeting with a bunch of DARPA people talking about how to put the White House on the Internet, and... um, I went home that night and wrote a bunch of implementation notes, which was kind of the, here's how I would do that. And of course that got ratified as a design document. So the next thing I knew I was the technical project lead for hooking uh, whitehouse.gov up to the internet. And so I managed and maintained and uh, implemented that machine, which was kind of fun. And in the course of doing all that, I had an old executive office building pass. And one, one night when I was kind of wandering around waiting for some backups to complete, I wandered by Al Gore's desk and I saw that that son of a bitch had wasted taxpayers' money on um, getting custom mouse pads made with the great seal. So I took it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's great. 
And I, yeah, I used it for, I used it for about 10 years. And then one of my ex-wife's hippie friends said, Hey, that thing's not real. And I just thought it'd be funny. And I said, nah, not really. You can have it. So (laughs) I'm going to spend the rest of this podcast distancing myself from you. So you'll (laughs) see me slowly pulling back. That is so funny. I, I did work with the security detail a couple of times and that was really interesting. I was doing a class for the secret service, uh, detail, on backtracking threatening emails because there had been a couple when when the email system first went live there were people who thought it'd be funny you know when their friend was in the bathroom and stayed logged on to send a threatening letter to the president which which is what happened to some poor kid in canada who i backtracked so uh, me and my boss at the time did a class for the secret service on how to backtrack email and it was kind of funny because we're down there and there's you know these just you know nice people who are completely ordinary and then halfway through the class, these ninjas with suppressed H&K MP5s walked in and came and stood in the back of the room. Apparently, there were other parts of the detail that normally aren't seen who, you know, thought it was an interesting class or heard it was an interesting class and decided to just drop in. And that was kind of the most unusual uh, class attendees I've ever had. How do you back- backtrack? So you can tell really ultimately who sent something? Is that through IP stuff? or? Well, the Internet was a lot smaller. In those days. Right. I mean, orders of magnitude smaller. But, you know, what you would do, what you would usually do is you would look at the, you would look at the headers of the messages. And at the point where the, at the point where the message comes into a system that's under your control, you can begin to trust the log data. So you're usually going to have the IP address of the machine that delivered the, that delivered the message to your machine. And then you can look and see there are certain fingerprints you can look to see if it looks like the message has fake headers or if they're real headers. And if they're real headers, then you just call the administrator of that machine and you say, could you search through your system logs and see, you know, whether message ID such and such originated on your box. And they do that. And then they've got the time and you've got the time and that synchronizes in the correct order. And then you see what users were logged in and what they were doing at that time. That's terrifying. Oh, yeah. Well, and the capabilities that they've got, you know, the the stuff you've heard about, about the data center that the NSA has got out in Utah, it's it's that times a thousand, but it's automated also. And, you know, most, you know, I I always feel a little sick to my stomach when I hear the um, discussions about, you know, oh, the metadata, is this a problem or it's not a problem? Most Americans have absolutely no idea how completely horribly fucked we are. They're watching everything, aren't they? It, it, not only are they well, they're collecting everything. When they say that they're they're looking at the metadata, what they've read, what they've done is they've redefined "look" to mean that a human eyeball sees it. So they're they're collecting everything, and it's being looked at by algorithms that pull things to analysts' attention, and that's where the looking happens. But if you think about it for a second, you'll realize that the whole system has absolutely no usefulness at all if you can't go back and look at the actual source messages. Um, do you mask your transmissions when you do email and encrypt everything to prevent them watching? Great question. You know, I was thinking about this a few years ago, about, about 10 years ago. Um, somebody somebody who was trying to interfere with my life um, began trying to threaten me regarding something that they thought was a secret. They didn't know it wasn't a secret, but they thought it was a secret, and they started threatening to essentially tell my wife about this thing that I did as part of a regular hobby and because um, uh, they thought I was keeping it secret. And um, it made me really think hard, and I just decided I'm going to leave an open life. I really just don't give a shit. If somebody wants to know what I do, I'll just tell them. Um, yeah, you can't hurt me if I don't have any secrets. That's right. It's kind of the built-in golden rule. If you live by that, you you have nothing to worry about. Right. Because you've kind of self-checked everything. But, the, uh, you know, what most Americans don't realize is it's not just your cell phone data. And it's not just your text messages. And it's not just your internet email. And it's not just your web browsing activity. It's also all of your financial transactions. And, wow. it, and it's right. also the U.S. Mail, United Parcel Service, and FedEx put all their shipping information in as well. So right. when they see that you go to cheaperthandirt.com with an SSL connection and you spend $250 and you get a box from, via uh, FedEx ground that's labeled ORMD, they know you bought ammunition. I'm not going to buy any more ammunition. I'm going to make my own. Go to Walmart, buy it with cash. <laughs> yeah, when uh, when Yellowstone explodes, my wife's going to Walmart to buy all the canned goods and I'm going to Grander Mountain to buy all the guns. <laughs> 
So before it hits the news, we should both be pretty locked and loaded. I need to learn how to use one of these things now, but I think it's, they'll probably still be YouTube up. I can check that out. Well, I know but you're tracking that. I know you're joking, but you're engaged in what I call the survivorship fallacy, which a lot of people do, where where you assume, you know, oh, there's going to be a great big disaster that's going to kill 99% of humanity. And they always assume they're going to be in the 1% that survives. And my attitude is, in the off chance that I'm part of the 1% that survives, I will be eating those guys' food and carrying their guns. You'll have plenty of food and guns then. Yep. I'm the one guy that all my friends have pretty much guaranteed won't be welcome on any of their compounds. <laughs> I have no skills. I don't think QLab's going to be pretty important when uh, when the world's ending. Yeah, but you could do an amazing hand grenade juggling act. <laughs> How did you end up becoming this UDP militant expert? Well, okay, so... Uh, as I said, my interest was in distributed systems back in the mid to mid to mid to mid late eighties, and I did a lot of network programming. And one of the things I did was also a lot of grubbling around in the kernel and trying to figure out how this this various sorts of stuff works. And you know, my first network computing experience actually was at uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital, and it involved hooking a channel attached IP stack to an IBM mainframe and that thing did have problems because basically they were, you know, handcrafting packets. And so if you if you zoom back in time to 19, you know, they, yeah, literally it looked like a punch card device to the mainframe and so if you wanted to send a packet you created a miniature virtual deck of cards which you sent to this thing which then emitted a packet out on the network. And in those days, UDP was a thing because actually implementing a full TCP stack was a pain. And so this legend started to be propagated that TCP is tremendously inefficient, which is generally complete nonsense. Because if what you want to do is implement a reliable connection, you send a packet to me and I send an acknowledgement packet back. And then if you want to make it more reliable, we put sequence numbers in it. So you send me, a, you know, I'm assuming UDP here. You send me a packet. I send an acknowledgement back with the same sequence number. And if you don't get it, you retransmit it. Guess what? We've just re-implemented TCP. We've just done it really badly. Um, and, you know, setting up a TCP connection takes three or four packets, depending on, on, on the situation. You can say three, maybe even just say five. It really doesn't matter. But with today's network speeds, that makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. But here's the reason why TCP is, is vastly superior to UDP. For one thing, it's a connected state. So it's going to work more effectively through a firewall. You don't have this thing where you've got to worry about intermediate devices that don't do load sharing or load balancing or load vectoring correctly. A TCP connection is going to work through an F5 load balancer. UDP, maybe not, right? Um, you got to worry about why, that. Why is that? Why won't it work through there? Because it's looking for a reply. Well, it depends on how, it depends on how the um, it depends on how the load balancer is configured. But but basically, what the load balancers and stuff like load balancers and firewalls and all these devices are doing is they're imposing state on this stateless connection. It's not really a connection. They're imposing state on this stateless traffic to make it look like a connection, which means that inside the firewall, even though your UDP connection is not really doing connection-y stuff. I shouldn't use the word UDP connection. Your UDP traffic isn't really doing a connection. The firewall has to maintain a state table entry, yada, 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 yada. But here's where it gets to be a problem. When your firewalls, your routers, your um, intermediate switches, load balancers, anything, if they ever start to experience packet congestion, they usually have two queues or they have queues that are flagged, whether it's you know UDP or TCP. And because of the way the protocol specifies it, you just throw away the UDP packets first. So if you're using UDP, you're guaranteeing that your data is not only, you, you don't get an acknowledgement, but you're guaranteeing that your data is the first stuff up against the wall when things start getting shot. And it, you can tell this, and I, you know, the, the whole thing that prompted me sending you that, that lengthy rant was because um, when people who don't understand this start trying to burst audio or something like that over UDP, what they don't understand is that inside the kernel, there is a queue of how many packets can get queued up to go out a particular interface. And if you send too many packets UDP out that queue, the operating system just zeroes it. It goes, what? Too much? I can't hold, I can't hold that. And they just throw it away because that's what you're, you're guaranteed that you're allowed to throw away UDP. 
With TCP, it's going to send it's going to send five packets, wait for an acknowledgement on that window, and then it's going to send another five depending on the window size. You know, and when you know, don't don't make the mistake of thinking that with a TCP that you send one packet and you get an acknowledgement. What TCP does is it does really clever windowing. So depending on your network, its reliability, the MTU, uh, the path length, and a bunch of stuff, it might send five or five or ten packets out on the wire and get back a single acknowledgement saying, yeah, I got all 10 of them. Once it knows the connection's really clean, it's going to keep opening that window size up. So this is really fantastic. But for someone who's doing process control, and this is the thing that just makes my head explode, for process control, um, you actually have a notion of whether your endpoint device has stopped responding because the TCP does a keep alive implicit in it. You, know, you can also turn on keep alive options so it'll do a keep alive every five seconds. I mean, wouldn't you like to know if your Bluetooth device had suddenly stopped talking to its base station? Yes. Well, yeah, it's because, you know, Bluetooth, it's the same nonsense as UDP. It's one of these stateless things. And it makes sense if you're a shitty coder and you don't have enough stick to to implement an IP stack, you know, full with full TCP and windowing and all that kind of stuff. But nowadays, there's no excuse for that because you can get a really good, you know, there's three or four really good free TCP stacks floating around and, you know, they come on a Raspberry Pi or a USB stick or whatever. Um, so, you know, not using TCP is just crazy. And UDP doesn't require that kind of extra layer of technology? Yeah, well, I mean, UDP, UDP, basically, if you want to implement, what you need to do is have something that receives packets. You need to do ARP, and then you need to receive packets. And then if you're just doing UDP, you, you just look at the packet header and go, okay, it's a UDP packet. And then you crack it and send it to whatever application is listening on that port. So you, you can implement a UDP, pack, uh, UDP stack in, you know, I wouldn't say a couple pages of code, but maybe a couple dozen pages of code. And a TCP stack, it's it's hard work, and getting it right is is a lot more difficult. But the point is, nobody has to do that anymore. You know, I've got I've got six of those Lifex programmable bulbs in my house, and they're running web servers inside them. You know, and it's running it's running some flavor of Linux of some sort or another. It's got a full blown TCP stack and. You know, and that's that's really nice. I mean, you can tell if your endpoint device has stopped responding. I'm one of those shitty programmers. Uh, I use a lot of libraries from someone else. So my question, this is what I use UDP for. I use it to send out MIDI commands out to just broadcast it to multiple computers. So I say uh, MIDI show control go, and I just spit it out, and I wait for another one of my other computers to receive it. Um, so... Would TCP be able to do the same thing where I would be able to send with the right programming, of course, um, a MIDI show control out and then have multiple computers receive it without adding anything extra to their computers? Well, assuming that the, assuming that the targets were were able to use TCP for that communication, yeah, that would uh -huh. just work, right? I mean, the situation you've got right now, and and you know, when I was listening to some of the earlier episodes of your podcast, I was kind of laughing to myself because I think I recognize some of the syndrome. Let's say you've got twenty five of those devices, and mm -hmm. let's say that the computer that you're running is something that doesn't actually have a very long output queue on the network interface driver on the physical driver for the network interface. Let's say that that network interface can handle twenty four packets. So it's going to work great until you try to broadcast 25 UDP packets in one great big burst and then you lose one of them. Right. And then, you know, the the audio engineer is in hell trying to figure out why this is suddenly not working. With TCP what you do is you just, you know, use a socket, you create a file descriptor, you 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 connect a socket to the remote port which causes that three-way three handshake to happen. And then you just write on that file descriptor, and when when the write completes through the kernel, you know that the endpoint got it and acknowledged it. How nice is that? And if you, if it doesn't complete, you know the endpoint died. And what you can do is you can do those as synchronous writes. You can do them as asynchronous writes. It takes maybe half a page more programming. But you know the big problem is that these these endpoint devices. You know, MIDI was also designed by the same people who don't build stateful connections. Right. Um, 
the whole the whole web is built on this idea of let's not do stateful connections and you can see all the horrible problems we've got with preserving login state and shopping cart state across across web stuff it's because the whole web was was basically coded by people who were really really sloppy and lazy why would people still continue to use UDP then? Is it just the laziness and not understanding that 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 urban legend kind of thing? That's right. It's it's inertia, and it's also unfortunately now it's it's kind of embedded inside of standardized protocols. I mean, I I am actually not a MIDI guy, but I'm willing to get bet that because MIDI was designed by audio engineers who are who are you know slightly less smart than network engineers, um, then. I'm guessing that MIDI, you know, you send a command and then stuff either happens or it doesn't, right? You don't actually get any acknowledgement that the endpoint received the command or that it's alive at all. Right. We see a blinking light at the device or not. But MIDI was originally designed network-free. So you had a MIDI device that actually sent a five-pin cable, but it only uses three pins, uh, to another MIDI device and was originally designed for musical instruments. So you hit a key on a keyboard, and then it produces a sound on the computer. And then in 84, they decided to use it for show control. So you could hit a key or send a command out and control a different device. See, and that's why the situation is so bad, because you've got these legacy designs, and then once you've got the devices, you've got the devices and they're using UDP, then people write top-layer top pieces that use UDP to talk to the devices that already use UDP, and you just keep perpetuating this brain damage. I mean, it's, it's really bad. UDP came later down in the line, because right now I use a lot of times IP MIDI, which is UDP. It takes a MIDI message. It, it's a driver on the computer that takes a MIDI message, converts it, sends it over UDP to another computer, receives it, and then converts it back to MIDI, and then plays it on QLab or whatever MIDI device you're using. And that's where I really got involved with UDP, working through IP MIDI, trying to make this work. And I think that's one of the issues is there's not many tools for, I guess, sound or show control using TCP. So I'm really interested in creating toolset now using TCP, sending MIDI or OSC or whatever commands that we need. I mean, here's the thing. Like, if I'm using one of those LifeX bulbs, it's basically doing HTML requests, I believe, to a web server. I haven't bothered slapping TCP dump on these things, but I believe it's talking to a web server. It's probably not talking SSL, but it's talking to a little web server running inside there. That means that if I tell it to turn off a light in California and I'm in Pennsylvania and it acknowledges that it turned off, I know it actually turned off. Isn't that nice? Mm -hmm. And you know, and all of the people who are doing show control and stuff like that, who are who are using these UDP things, I mean, it's just an endless litany of it was working and then suddenly it stopped responding. And you know, people who build reliable distributed networks using you know using higher level application abstractions that have flow control and delivery guarantees and connected state and stuff like that. You know, it's not that we're laughing; it's it's actually really depressing because there's all these wonderful capabilities there and you simply don't know. So the kind of thing I'm talking about which which totally doesn't exist, but that's why I wanted to, you know, talk to you guys about this. If somebody is out there building the next one of these things, use connected state TCP and put Raspberry Pis or something that's got a, a TCP stack in your endpoint devices because here's what setting up a next generation control thing would look like. You've got something that runs on your iPad. It's got some kind of a sexy interface. You've got a switch. You configure your network addresses for your endpoints. You configure your network addresses into your control panel. And then a little green light lights back up next to each one of them, showing that you've now connected to it. And the minute that that light starts to go orange, maybe the light going orange means that you're getting um, the bandwidth is dropped on that connection. If it goes red, it means that the thing's no longer responding. Wouldn't that be cool? I think one of the biggest issues, because I control my whole house from my iPhone, the lights, sound, everything, uh, there's too much of a delay where I could never do that in a show condition, where I need hitting a go to be less than a breath latency, uh, which would be perfect if I could do that from my house in control, which sometimes I do, but there's always that latency so I don't know about trying to figure out how to make it work without latency within show control and still have that response back. 
I think a lot of those latencies are, first off, you've got, you know, remarkably inefficient code running on the iPhone, which is sending the stuff. So there's latency just in the stacks of code in the iPhone. Um, Apple, I don't want to break it to anybody, but Apple doesn't write the most beautiful code. Um, I mean, the, 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 inter, the interfaces are the interfaces are pretty. I mean, the underlying stuff is is okay. It's actually a lot of it is Unix, but but I mean, there's a lot of layers of there's a lot of layers that glop between the interface and and the Unix. And then on the on the receiving side, you've got the same problem. You know, you've got this little Raspberry Pi or whatever it is inside your light, and it's running a web server, which is probably not particularly beautiful code either. Um, and there you're not dealing with a really, really fast processor. But, I mean, the, the crazy thing with these UDP-based apps where you're just sort of spraying data out and expecting it to work on the other end, the only thing that makes that work at all is that, that switches and local bandwidth has just gotten so amazingly good that you can, you, can, you can basically risk that you can spray all this data and that it's actually going to get there because the switches are that fast. Not to be an idiot, but is OSC using TCP or UDP, or is that doesn't apply in that case, or is it a totally different protocol? What is OSC? Open Sound Control. It came out of Berkeley. But you know, the big problem is if you've got devices that are using UDP, it's probably using UDP. I mean, really, what I'm really, but the thing is that you know, some sooner or later, somebody's got to break away from using these really, really archaic you know, networking techniques. I mean, you're talking stuff that's from the early 70s. Uh, so OSC came, it was OSC Open Sound Control Research at CNMAT at UC Berkeley Center for New Music and Technolo Audio Technology. So it probably doesn't use any of that stuff. I believe it uses TCP because I've been trying okay. to work around it and it doesn't work with UDP directly. I see. So there's no like switch to switch from one to the other. I mean, the, the, it does have to be code. It does have to be coded in your app. I mean, and, and you know, it takes a little bit of trickiness. I mean, if I was trying to write a TCP app that was going to control sixty switches and do it reliably, what I'd have to do is I'd have to do asynchronous TCPs on sixty potentially up to sixty connected sockets, and that would take me, you know, oh, a half an hour to code that. Um, <laughs> but then I would know that all sixty of those devices were actually talking to me and responding, and I could I could I could send I could send them null probes, and, and I could actually measure the available bandwidth between them. I mean, again, these are the kinds of things you just cannot do down in the down in the TCP stack. You've got um, you've got you know uh, MTU discovery, which is figuring out what's the ideal transmission unit for the media that you're going over. So the TCP is going to figure out what's the correct packet size to use for your wireless versus your cell phone network versus your your desktop fiber. UDP, no, nah, it just uses whatever packet size you sent. You know, I've become obsessed with OSC because I can use my iPad to control QLab because I'm usually alone on stage. But the great thing, just like you're saying with TCP, is I can have OSC enter QLab, execute whatever it's supposed to do, and then fire an OSC command back to change the iPad to let me know that it's finished and done what I've asked. And so I kind of have that a visual component or a tone or anything just to say, I've done what you've asked, that's all ready to go. Because I never have the luxury of looking at a computer screen or anything like that. All my hall has to be sort of, you know, audio or a quick visual glance at an iPad or something to kind of get that feedback. And it is comforting. OC could run either TCP or UDP. So it says if you're losing packets, switch over to TCP because it's much more reliable. And and this this is the thing that you need to know, right? Because it it can it can hit you in weird, unpredictable ways. You know, I was listening to one of your early your early episodes where uh, one of you guys was talking about you know a video thing that would work and then it would suddenly crash or something. I mean, what could have been going on there is that you were you were decoding packets out onto the wire, and at a certain point, the the MPEG decoder was decoding more data than you could fit on the wire, and so you started losing packets and it lost sync and it crashed. 
Um, and again, you don't you don't get that with a TCP. TCP does flow. Con- one, it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And the guys who've developed it have been optimizing it for a really long time. So when 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 you send me five packets and I send you back an acknowledgement saying, you know, I got those five packets, send me send me more. Part of that ACK packet contains flow control information. Like, you know what? You could actually send me 25 packets if you want. And then the next time you'll send me 25 packets or I can send you zero saying I'm, I'm full, I'm busy, don't send me anymore for a second. And then you'll pause for 100 milliseconds before you try to send me more packets. So there's all this flow control built into the, built into the protocol that you get for free when you're using it. Um, so you know, it's just something to think about if you're trying. If you're ever dealing with um, low bandwidth connections, this is going to sound very counterintuitive. But if you're dealing with low bandwidth connections, if you can go over TCP to a device that's close to your endpoints, then you can do UDP to your endpoints over a local switched network or a local wireless. But but you use TCP to do your long distance control. So if you're trying to control, if you were ever trying to control and queue a show from China. Um, you could do that using TCP, but there is no way in hell you would get a UDP packet all the way across the internet with any chance of it ever arriving in in any kind of sequence. Yeah, I only use UDP within a closed system, never going outside of our house. I want to come over and see your house. Yeah, come over, come play. All right, I'll be there in 10 minutes. Okay. You're based in Pennsylvania, is that right, Marcus? Yeah, I live on a compound up in the middle of no place in north-central Pennsylvania. Okay, and do you have your bunker ready and everything? I don't, because, it, you know, if I if I ever actually do need a bunker, um, I, I have access to one. Oh, okay, one of which that I'm not invited to, no doubt. You're completely welcome. It's very dank. Uh, so, so one of the reasons I live up here, this is, you know, this is something that's always difficult to talk about, but real estate is very inexpensive here. That's why I live here. Um, a bunch of years ago, because I'm a hobbyist and, and I just collect weird stuff. And I, again, I get a chuckle when I listen to you guys talking about your garages. I, I have a 5,500 square foot closet. Um, a bunch of years ago, I just bought an old elementary school. Um, <laughs> And I, I paid way less for it than you would pay for a parking place in any any development in Virginia. I mean, well under a hundred thousand. Let's please put that. Did that come with the kids, or those were extra? It came, no, it's a it's a nineteen fifties building. It's fifty five hundred square feet. It does have a bomb shelter basement. It has a full commercial kitchen, um, five classrooms, concrete floors, uh, drop ceilings, the whole thing, um, and it's on nine acres with off street parking. And wow. you can buy stuff like that for, you know, fifty, sixty, eighty thousand bucks. The one that the one that really annoys me though is that the uh the high school in Phillipsburg sold for a quarter of a million a couple years ago. And that was one of the nineteen ten series of high schools. It's three stories high, a block deep and a block wide, and the whole thing sold for two hundred and fifty K. Wow. It wow. has an it has an Olympic pool and a four story high library and a basketball court in it. I would wow. have had some fun with that place. Amazing. So if if you're not a show control guy, how'd you stumble onto our podcast? I stumbled onto your podcast because I went to your show when I was out in LA and um I because I'm obsessive about this kind of stuff, I was sitting here trying to figure out how you're doing all of your stunts. Ah. And so I was, I mean, I, I, I figured you had switches hidden all over you. I don't know where they're hidden because you were wearing clothes, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, but I was figuring you had switches, and I was figuring you were you were probably using some variation of Bluetooth or something mm-hmm. like that. And, yeah, Bluetooth know. with a range extender for, uh, for, I think it's three kilometers. Really? Mm-hmm. Have you ever done a show where you've gotten three kilometers away from your, your light? No, but I have ridden my bicycle away from my laptop hooked up to my cordless phone with my iPhone on a phone call, and then I keep hitting the go button on the Bluetooth remote as I ride away from the house, and I have gotten three kilometers away and had, still had iTunes being able to start and stop it from, yep, all that way. Cool. And again, if I was designing a show control system that was based on TCP, you know, there would be a whole little panel of warning lights and so I wouldn't be sitting there pushing a button and looking at the little Bluetooth light. I would get a little automatic blinking light the second some connection dropped. 
or right. and you can you know again you can measure the bandwidth if you get down into the TCP options that are going back and forth on the socket you could even ask what the you know what the window sizes look like right now which is going to give you a pretty good measure of the the queue size and buffer space and the bandwidth that's going on in the connection yeah I mean I, I accomplished some of that stuff using Apple script sort of it's always checking to make sure QLab is happy it's always sending me feedback visually and audio audio wise so I know and actually always have a video on the screen behind me so I can each video is different for each routine so I can always confirm my place and that things are in the correct position and that kind of thing um, I've even started adding single pixel sort of flickers to let me know that something's just happened to, just so I have that comforting feeling especially when I'm doing new things that I'm not quite used to yet well, how do you handle how do you handle atomic or idempotent events where you can't retransmit if something goes wrong? You can't just send the packet again, right? You, right? Isn't that going to screw things up horribly? Yeah. Well, I I have a lot of backups. I have a lot of other options of ways of doing things. So I have a just a, a single control button on my belt with a secondary button that changes its purpose depending on what state I'm in or what state is happening. So that secondary button is sort of a confirmation button if I'm in trouble. And I can lift my leg up, it has a little extension on it. And so when I lift my leg, it'll fire that second button and sort of I can look and it'll confirm if I am having an issue. Every once in a while, I gotta walk over to the computer and have a quick glance, but 90% of the time, I guess wrong. Like I go, oh, that's not working. And then I make the wrong guess. And then two minutes later, I realize, oh, okay. I see. I, it's too late then. See, you know. this is this is why I'm issuing my plea to the people who design these systems to use reliable communications because you actually could have your queuing console send a message that you could red flag as something that you want an acknowledgement from the endpoint device that it did in fact fire the cannon or that it, you know, has made the cannon safe so it's okay for you to stick your head in it. Um, you you want that acknowledgement and the people who code UDP what they do is they wind up you know writing these completely goofy things like send the cannon safe command let's send it five times now let's do the cannon are you safe request and get the answer back and if it gives back a yes answer I'm gonna stick my head in the cannon I mean that's just not how to do this stuff the people who use database the people who build databases and airline transaction systems and financial transaction systems use reliable communications for a reason. Right. So when they're doing those super fast stock trades, they're using TCP to crank down that transaction speed to have the advantage. Is that true? Well, it's also because they want to make sure the transaction posted. Right. You have to make sure that the stuff, you have to make sure the stuff got, gets there. Mm-hmm. So how do you discover if something using UDP? I guess just a coder can go in and tell, but that's it. I can't tell what it's, what's happening. Yeah, um, probably what you would do is just slap TCP dump on your on your local uh, connection and then see what's going on. Well, you know, the crazy thing is it's getting difficult to get switches now that you can that you can snap. TCP dump onto because nowadays the switches only show you the traffic that you're supposed to get on a certain port. So you have to have a managed switch and you have to know how to do it. And, you know, suddenly you're into network engineering. And again, it's it's what drives me crazy about this stuff because this should just be done right. And then none of these problems would be happening to anybody. Um, you know, <laughs> you, you just, I want to go back in time and, and you know, Again, it's like the whole it's like the whole web thing. I mean, should I rant about that on the side? It's relevant. Sure. Sure. Okay. So, you know, the web is stateless, right? So when you're sitting there with your browser and you click buy on amazon.com, it posts a request. It's not connected to Amazon. It posts a request and then it uh it includes with that request all these magic cryptographic cookies that allow Amazon to tell that that request is in fact associated with the previous requests that put those items in the shopping cart. And so there's all this state mechanism that's built into this stateless protocol because the friggin' stupid boneheads who built this used a stateless protocol. Now they did that for a very good reason because in 1991, 1992, when the web was first starting to become a thing, there were limits on how many connections that a machine could have. So they they adopted this goofy idea of using stateless protocols instead of changing how many connections a machine could have. 
which would have been the correct answer. And if it had been done the way I'm talking about, you would log into the website once, you'd nail your connection up, it would stay nailed up until you until you told it you were done with your transactions, and then it could drop the connection. And the whole time, you'd be using the same cryptographic negotiation. It would be way faster because you wouldn't have to be setting up these connections and tearing them down and setting up and renegotiating and denegotiating encryption. Um, it's just, you know, it's all so badly designed. It's, it's, it's really, really painful to look at. But aren't we just trapped now because it's just, it's there and people are either too lazy or there's too much entrenched kind of other software depending on it? Yep. Exactly. I, I did a I did a TEDx talk a bunch of years ago about this topic because you know the the only reason that we've got firewalls is because FTP does these very strange things with its connection state, and so I started asking some of the old Multics programmers about well why does FTP do that because you know and, and you know in the context of why didn't somebody just drag FTP out behind the woodshed like old Yeller and shoot it. Um, and they said, well, you know, FTP works. And they said, well, actually, it really doesn't work. It just appears to work. But, you know, why did it do this? And they said it's because in the early days before before the TCP internet, they used a thing called NP NCP, Network Control Protocol, that could only carry data one direction on a, on a connection. And so the people who coded it had to do it that way. And so what you've got is you've got a a bad software engineering design that was made circa 1969 or something like that, that has propagated its way all the way to today and has produced a multi-billion dollar industry dealing with that backwards compatibility side effect. So it sounds like we need to ditch what we have, upgrade, and not look back. Yeah, I suggested that for Y2K, what we really should do is we should uh, we should just say that everything had crashed and it all needed to be recoded from from the get go by a bunch of adults who were going to do a green a green a greenfield design with no backwards compatibility anywhere in it. Um, kind of like Apple. Yeah, well, they kind of did. I mean, that is necessary to do, and you know, it's it's really a difficult problem with the industry. Now, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for people who build embedded devices. Once you've got a warehouse full of devices that have code in them that can't be flashed and updated and upgraded, then you have to deal with the reality of those devices and you have to be compatible with those devices. But, but gosh, sooner or later, we have to be able to say, you know, you know, we're, we're done with, we're done with being compatible with this particularly ancient thing. I mean, isn't it kind of strange? It's 2015 and the Australians, the English, the Americans and the French have different wall outlet shapes still. How, how goofy is that? Wow. No one's agreed. Yeah. You know, and there's even countries that drive on opposite side of the sides of the roads and all the cars are put together differently. I mean, I'm not saying one or the other is right, but, but for goodness sake, what, think about how much waste of effort is going on because of these kinds of compatibility things. So because, you know, back to my point about if the internet was designed so that websites all operated in connected state, then the programmers who were programming web apps wouldn't have to write any code to preserve state. Your state check would now be is user logged in. <laughs> That's it. And and when you're when you're a beginning web programmer, if you're trying to write some web application, you have sixty different state maintenance uh, frameworks, and you have to decide which one you're going to code to. And you have to write pages of code to work inside that state maintenance framework. All of that code is completely wasted because of the demon of backwards compatibility. How did you end up getting involved in, in this kind of stuff? Well, it's mostly because my whole life has been spent catering to trying to deal with the demon of backwards compatibility. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the it's a vicious circle. Yeah. Well, the firewall, the firewall that I coded, I mean, I had to support the, the first firewall. This was 89, I guess it was. But I had to support uh, FTP, Telnet, um, our login, Usenet News and DNS. Those were the only protocols I had to support. That was pretty much all that was running on the Internet in those days. And it was all easy going up until I got to FTP. And I, I, I spent, you know, a week sitting there looking at this and going, who imp who came up with this, you know? And that was a question that stuck with me ever since. I mean, why, why are we still doing that? 
And what's really and what's really crazy with a lot of these things, you know, it's, it's kind of like the MIDI thing, right? Um, you, you know, imagine if somebody actually made and, and they're doing this kind of crazy thing with audio now. Imagine somebody actually made a TCP MIDI. Well, then there would be a market for little plug-in things that talk regular old MIDI and then talk TCP MIDI out the back, and then you could do your long haul over the TCP MIDI and your regular MIDI close up. And I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you get now. Um, you know, because you know, you're who's going to throw away a perfectly good MIDI device? Does do we know if QLab runs UDP? Yeah, we could send the ASCII OSC over UDP. The backbone of it is running off of the OSC, and then Chris added in the UDP ASCII, so we could just send in any text message over it. So it's running both. And is, is TCP part of that too? Yeah. Oh uh, well, it's part of OSC. Right. It is. Okay. And that's how they get their iPad app to work with it. So it makes a connection. It holds a connection and sends information back and forth. With TCP. With TCP. Right. So probably Lemur is also using that. There's probably nothing that actually consumes the TCP stuff because everything's probably based on UDP. But switch, 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 switch. Why you don't think it's receiving the TCP stuff on the other side? It's just establishing that the connection's live and then everything else is separate. No, well the sender the sender has to do the sender has to do TCP stuff and the receiver has to do TCP stuff. So if you've got a if you've got a you know if I have a light bulb that's expecting to get a UDP packet and then decode it and then turn itself on or off based on that, I there's no TCP I can send it that's useful. So the people who are writing the controller software um, can handle the TCP devices that exist, but the problem is that they're dealing with a plethora of UDP-based devices. So of course they're gonna they're gonna have to use that. Um, it, that that's where that's where you're gonna get stuck. I mean the 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 main thing is the main thing though, and and what really inspired me to write that over the top rant at you is the the reason for using UDP is not because TCP setup times are slow. The reason for using UDP is because of backwards compatibility with brain damaged devices that are using protocols from the 60s and 70s. So have you done any kind of interesting legal hacking? I don't hack stuff much. Um, I, I don't find it to be very interesting. Um, uh, there, There's a, a philosophical methodology that you can use for hacking, which goes something along the line. It's just basically flaw hypothesis. So you go, hmm, I'm going to hypothesize that this system has a flaw. And then you go, well, the system does these things. What are the kinds of things that a programmer would do wrong in the process of doing those things? And then you look there and you find flaws. And so, and so I don't actually bother. Uh, I, I've kind of optimized that loop, and I simply go, I hypothesize that the system has a flaw. We're done. I don't even need to look. And frequently, you can, you can actually just you know, um, ask about how the program was developed, and you simply know that there are flaws. You don't. Uh, Marcus, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much. And I will point people to your website if people need to get some security and... Uh, have a few laughs as well. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, it's a pleasure. And Dave, thanks for joining us as well. Good job. Oh, thank you. Cool. And have a good night. I'll see All you right. next time. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. I will leave us with a quote. The real danger is not that computers will begin to think like man, but that men will begin to think like computers. Sidney Harris. The Q is produced by Active Media Group in association with the Q Show cast. Music for The Q was written and performed by Kyle Swafford. For more information and links to our blog, online tutorials, cast, and videos, please visit theqshow.com. You can contact us at info at theqshow.com. Now go out and make something, and you too can go to 11.